Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. That's pretty much the message for the moment. I don't know if you have been 
paying attention to what's going on in our world, the insanity of the politics of the day, or the cultural rot that seems to be overtaking our society. You know, biblically, the sign, the definite proof that God is punishing a people is that he removes himself from them. And one of the ways that you can tell that God has removed himself from any particular people is that they land on that slippery slope of continually heading into less and less righteousness and more and more immorality. The world right now is codifying immorality, putting it right on the books, putting it right into our laws. So if you're watching what's going on right now in the world, it's, it's kind of impossible not to conclude that we are in a period of judgment right now. America as a nation, the world generally. But that is the history of the world. I mean, way back in the book of Genesis, God brought about a flood and destroyed everybody because the wickedness of man's heart was only evil continually, we read. And so God started over with eight people. And then when dealing with Israel, he gave them the law. And based on their ability to keep the law, he promised them that he would keep them in their land and that he would protect them from their enemies, protect them from wild animals, give them plenty to eat and drink as long as they just kept his law. And he said, if you don't do it, I'll punish you and I'll punish you bad. I'll take you out of this land and I'll give you over to your enemies. You would think that would be sufficient inducement for them to want to keep the law. But no, because human beings are intrinsically depraved, they then did not keep his law, did not keep his Sabbaths, did not keep his feasts, and as a consequence, God judged them. This is the history of the world. It's hard to say that America is not under the hand of God's judgment at this moment because the things that are evil, we are calling good. <clears throat> things that are bitter, we are calling sweet. And it's coming from the leadership, from the top down. America is just fraying at the edges. Did you eat something today? Yes. Be grateful. You're wearing some clothes today? Oh, thank goodness you are. Amen. Be grateful. You got a home to live in? Be grateful. Do you have people around you that you love? Be grateful. That is God's grace and mercy in protecting his own people, in blessing his own people, the same way that he kept Israel in Goshen while he was busy judging Egypt. God is today judging the world and protecting his people. Be grateful. You could be among those people who are blinded and who believe that the sinful, decaying, immoral world 
is their clan. That's my group. I'm going along with that. It amazes me whenever I see polls, opinion polls. You know, right now, the great majority of Americans say that the country is going in the wrong direction, that we're on the wrong track. But then there's always like 35% who seem OK with it. And I think, who are those people? You could be one of those people. God could very easily turn you over to your own flesh and your own mind and your own imagination. And yet he has protected you, called you to himself, opened your mind, opened your heart, gave you an interest in the things of God, given you the proclivity to think about the things of God, to read his word, to pray to him, and to find your confidence and your hope in him. Because there's no confidence and no hope in this world. There's no confidence, no hope in your flesh. The only hope, the only confidence you can possibly have is that God himself, even in the midst of this crazy and decaying and increasingly stupid world, God is on his throne doing whatever pleases him. So take heart and know that even as the world continues circling the drain, God is still doing exactly what God wants to do. And he is judging the world exactly the way he wants to judge the world. And though it looks like the prince of the power of the air is running rampant, you got to remember, as Elder Ward used to say, you got to remember that the devil is God's devil. Because when we get to the end of the book of Revelation, he's going to throw him in the lake of fire. So that means that God can do away with him whenever he wants. He's just not done using him yet to drive this world into increasing levels of godlessness. And he's still on his throne, still doing whatever seems right to him. Be grateful. Be happy that he didn't pass by you, but that he called you to himself. Revelation chapter 13. I'm going to start reading at verse 1. We're going to read the whole chapter now. And then we're going to wrap up the chapter by reading about calculating the number of the beast and the number 666. And we're going to spend the majority of the morning talking about those two verses and seeing if we can figure out the whole 666 thing. Verse 1 says, And he stood. Oh, this reminds me. The words, and he stood, remind me of Jeff for some reason. Because a moment ago, he stood right here. No, because Jeff last week said that what he was hearing last week was helpful to him to get the characters in place. And so I want to emphasize the various characters that we see here in verse 13, because you do have to understand the three personages that we are introduced to in chapter 13. And the first he here that stood on the seashore is the beast who is referred to by Daniel as the little horn. He is the one that we typically call Antichrist, even though I think we could argue that all three of these characters, persons, are all anti-Christian. 
But the first beast is also empowered by Satan himself. So that's the second personage, the second character that we find active here in this chapter. So you have Satan, the dragon, who gives power to the beast, the little horn. And then we're going to run into another beast who comes up with horns like a lamb, looking like a peacemaker. He is the religious figure, and it is the religious figure who ultimately gets people to worship that first beast who is empowered by Satan himself. So the three characters I want you to be very clear about are the dragon, Satan, the beast, the little horn, nicknamed the Antichrist, and the false prophet, who is the one who causes everyone to take a mark or be killed or worship the beast and his image. Are you clear about those three characters? Okay, now we'll start reading again. And he stood. When I read that, did everybody think of Jeff now? Did, did, okay, that's good. And he stood on the sand of the seashore, and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard. And his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, because he gave his authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? And who is able to wage war against him? And there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. And authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, those who dwell in heaven. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone is destined to be killed with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. And I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. And he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, whose fatal wound was healed. And he performs great signs, so that he even makes fire come down from heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs 
which it was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast. Telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And there was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast might even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free men and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one should be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. So let's start with talking about the motivation of Satan. Why is Satan doing what he's doing here? Why is he motivating the beast and the false prophet to cause people to either take a mark or be killed and that they have to worship the image of the beast? What is Satan's motivation for doing that? Well, again, Isaiah is going to tell us because I believe that we have to understand the book of Revelation within the context of the whole Bible. So turn to Isaiah chapter 14 for a minute, and we're going to understand the motivation of the dragon. Isaiah 14 is a taunt against Babylon and against the leaders in Babylon. I'm going to start reading from... Oh, about verse 9. Now remember, this taunt is to Nebuchadnezzar. But what you're going to see is the perspective change, and Isaiah is going to speak to Nebuchadnezzar, through Nebuchadnezzar, right to Satan who drives him. For weeks now, I've been saying to you that there are seven nations collectively in the Bible whoever rule over God's people, Israel, and over Jerusalem. And I said that they are demonically inspired kingdoms, which is why they are represented by the seven heads that are on the dragon. They are demonically inspired. One, during the Roman Empire, there is one who has been killed, one of those seven heads, one of those demonic powers does not exist during John's time, and yet is going to exist again. Rise up out of the abyss to go into perdition. That's the language of the book of Revelation. And so this is an example in the Old Testament of that very thing, where God, speaking through Isaiah, is going to speak to Nebuchadnezzar and then speak right past him to the demon that drives him. Saying in verse 9, Sheol from beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come. Boy, that's bad news to find out that the grave and the dead are just waiting for your arrival. It arouses for you the spirits of the dead and all the leaders of the earth. 
It raises all the kings of the nations from their thrones. By the way, in Isaiah's reckoning here, the leaders of the earth and all the kings of the nations are apparently in hell because they're all excitedly waiting for Nebuchadnezzar to join them. Verse 10, they will all respond and say to you, even you have been made weak as we have, and you have become like us. Your pomp and the music of your harps have been brought down to Sheol. Maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you, and the worms are your covering. So far, everything in this taunt has been against Nebuchadnezzar himself as leader of Babylon. And then look at verse 12. Suddenly the perspective changes to how you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. By the way, star of the morning is what Lucifer means. He is now speaking past Nebuchadnezzar to Lucifer himself. And says, how have you fallen from heaven? Which, by the way, may be read as a question. How is it that you have fallen from heaven? You were created to be beautiful. Your pipes and your tabrets were in you. You were the song leader in heaven. How is it that you've fallen? Or it can be read as look at the extreme from where you were to where you are now. How extreme your fall is. How you have fallen from heaven. O star of the morning, son of the dawn, you've been cut down to the earth. That's bad news for us, we earth dwellers, to find out that Satan, who is the prince of the power of the air, is active in the world and being thrown out of heaven and cast down to the earth. And what has he done while he was here on the earth? You who have weakened the nations. That's what he's done. He has confounded the nations, confused the nations, brought about the very sinful and depraved state that we see the world in at this very moment. So what was his motivation? That was my first question. Verse 13 answers the question, but you said in your heart. Okay, God is now going to tell us. What kind of pride was going on in Lucifer, in Satan, that caused him to come down and weaken the nations? Because you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north, and I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will make myself like the most high. His motivation is, I want to be like God. I want to be worshipped like God. I want to imitate God. I want to do what God does. God gets worshipped. I want to be worshipped. God rules and reigns. He's on his throne doing whatever he wants. So I'm going to set up my throne And I'm going to sit in the mount of the assembly because God sits in the mount of the assembly. Satan's goal is to imitate God in every way that he possibly can. And that's described for us here in Isaiah. I will raise my throne above the angels, the stars of God. 
I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights. I will make myself like the most high. Fortunately, verse 15 says, nevertheless, you will be thrust down into the recesses of the pit. That is God's response, but I want you to understand Satan's motivation. Satan's motivation is, I want to be like God. And so, so much of what we read here in the book of Revelation has parallels between who God is, what God is like, what God is doing, and then Satan imitating those things. That is why in Revelation 13, we see the dragon and the little horn and the false prophet. It is a false trinity. The same way that the trinity is father, son, and spirit, Satan is creating his own fake trinity between Satan and the little horn and the false prophet. And there are actually parallels. And there are so many parallels that I'm going to try to point out as many as I can think of, and I'm still going to miss several. But there are so many parallels going on in the book of Revelation, and especially in chapter 13. For instance, the little horn is said to have died, had a wound, a wound to his head that killed him, and then he rose again. No surprise that that is the same series of events that we know about Christ. Because the little horn, the Antichrist, Antichrist, is the imitation of Jesus himself. And the same way that the little horn gets his power from the dragon, Jesus walked around always saying that he could do nothing without his father. And so these relationships are similar. The false prophet is the imitation of the Holy Spirit. And the same way that the Holy Spirit of God doesn't speak of himself, that's what we read in the New Testament, he won't speak of himself, says Jesus, but he'll remind you of everything about me. He'll remind you of everything I said. That's why the false prophet drives people to worship the Antichrist. It's the same relationship. So there is this imitation in a Trinitarian form taking place in chapter 13. And we understand it because we know from Isaiah that it has always been Satan's intention to imitate God. He wants to be God. He wants to be worshipped like God, which is why, again, in chapter 13, we read that the false prophet causes everybody to worship the image of the beast. But when they do that, they're worshipping the dragon because Satan's ultimate goal is to get worship. And the prince of the power of the air is at this very moment creating a political environment in the world, a sociological and immoral environment in the world right now where we can see these kind of things coming to pass. No longer is the world interested in godliness, righteousness, holiness, holding a standard. Everybody wants to do whatever they want to do whenever they want to do it. They want to be completely independent. They want to make up their own rules. That's the way that the whole world is acting right now. And don't you dare tell them they're wrong. 
If you just happen to say something slightly critical of the way the world is going, you'll get canceled. You'll get erased on Twitter or Facebook. OK, so I said to you that we're going to concentrate this morning on the 666. But in order to really understand the 666, you have to have that in your mind, this unholy trinity, this imitation of God, and the motivation of Satan to imitate God in everything. Now, the Greek rendering of 666, as I mentioned last week quickly in passing, is hexakosioi, which is 600, hexakonta, which is 60, and hex, which is 6. Which is why, if you're afraid of the number 666, apparently that is an actual phobia. And that is called hexakosioi, hexakonta, hexaphobia. And that means you are afraid of the 666. And that's really bad for you if you also suffer from sesquipedalophobia, which is a fear of big words. <laughs> if you have a deep disdain for really big words, that is called, I'm not kidding, look it up, hippopotama monstra sesquipedalophobia, <laughs> to describe your fear of big words. That seems counterintuitive. Shouldn't the fear of big words be a really small word? I'm not playing Scrabble with you anymore. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> that is a word that is worth 582 points in Scrabble. Now, granted, there are two fragments that we have. I say we collectively, the church. There are two early manuscript fragments of the book of Revelation that instead of reading 666, actually read 616. But the great majority all agree that it is 666. So we've been deciphering and understanding Revelation based on other texts of the Bible. That's the way we've been approaching the book of Revelation so far. I've tried very hard not to make anything up, but to show you where other places in the Bible interpret the things that we see in the book of Revelation. And so I began my study of 666 with, well, then what does the Bible say about it? And I found two other places in the Bible where that number appears. And you know what? No help. It's no help at all. <laughs> One of those two places is in Ezra 2.1 which is talking about the people from the province who are exiles, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, carried away to Babylon, and then they returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own city, and then it lists the various families and the numbers of people from those families. And in verse 13, we read, the sons of Adonikam were 666. Okay, well, that's not really helping us with the Revelation interpretation. Second Chronicles 9.13 is talking about Solomon and how rich Solomon was. And it says, now the weight of gold which came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Okay, well, that doesn't really help us interpret it either. Since there is no biblical basis 
to help us understand the meaning of the 666 that has allowed people to just kind of run crazy. The most popular approach to the 666 is what is known as gematria. In John's time, pagans and Jews had a system for equating letters and numbers that would allow you to come up with a numerical value of that particular word or name. And that makes sense because since they didn't have a separate numbering system, they used the letters of their alphabet as numbers. Here I'll give you an example. Roman numerals. Roman numerals are both letters and numbers. It's the same way in the Hebrew. It's the same way in Greek. And so there were all kinds of pagan approaches to gematria. And then someone discovered, and I want to point out that this is a very recent discovery. It was just since 1831 that someone discovered that the word Nero, if you rendered it as Neron Kaiser, which would be the Greek name and title, not just name, and then if you transfer that to the Hebrew so that you got rid of the vowels, and then you counted the consonants and added them up, what a surprise, it comes to 666. Well, that created a whole movement where historicists pounced on it and said, well, there it is then. Nero was the Antichrist, and that's what John is writing about here. And, of course, if John is writing 92 to 96 AD, it seems a little pointless for him to be writing in code about somebody who's already dead that everybody already knows about. And so that is, again, one of the reasons that historicists try to early date the book of Revelation. They try to say that John wrote it before the end of Nero's reign, and then he was speaking of Nero here. But if you go online, if you got an afternoon to kill and you got nothing better to do, go online and look up how many words and names add up to 666. Because it really depends on the particular method that you're using and the language that you're using. It's astounding how many people take words and names that are in the English language and then translate them to either Greek or Latin, sometimes Hebrew, and then apply gematria rules so that they can come up with 666. For instance, Ronald Wilson Reagan, when he got shot, And they discovered that they could mangle the gematria in such a way as to make his name total 666. Oh, my goodness, we've discovered the Antichrist. But the truth of the matter is, chapter 13 doesn't just say that his name is going to add up to 666. The reason I read the whole of the chapter is that it tells us a whole lot of things have to happen. For instance... He rises up out of the sea. He's a composite of four beasts from Daniel chapter 7, 
The dragon gives him his power and authority. He receives a deadly wound. The deadly wound is healed. There's strong political power. There's strong religious power. He's guilty of blasphemy against God. He makes war and he overcomes the saints. He rules for 42 months exactly. And then he has this mysterious 666 name attached to him in some way. You have to remember all of that when you're looking for your Antichrist figure. And Nero simply does not satisfy all of that. In 68 AD, it was June of 68 AD, it was a balmy summer June in Rome, <laughs> when Nero took his own life with the help of one of his servants. And the way that he took his own life was that he drove a sword through his own neck to kill himself. And then a myth rose up because he insisted that he was a god. And by the way, contemporaries of his, after he committed suicide, went on record as saying that he was a buffoon. That's the actual language. That he was oftentimes just a fool. But he was cruel. And because he persecuted Christians, People have tried very hard to shoehorn him in as the Antichrist. As a consequence, there was a myth that developed known as Nero Redivivus, which is the Latin for Nero's going to live again, because they're trying to shoehorn him into the Antichrist story. But the truth of the matter is, now that it's been a few thousand years, Nero died and stayed dead, you know, the way people do. So. I think, this is my assessment, you're welcome to disagree. I mean, I will defend your right to be wrong. Um, that was a joke, it was completely a joke. The truth is, gematria has taught us nothing. For all people's efforts to figure it out mathematically and apply somebody's name and try to figure out the, the number value of each of the letters of the name, and then if it doesn't add up, you change it to a different language that maybe does or doesn't have vowels. And people just keep doing that because they have a predisposition that they're trying to prove. They're trying to prove that somebody is the Antichrist, and so they will fiddle with it, for instance, like the whole Nero thing, I told you that it's Neron Kaiser, which means Caesar Nero or Nero Caesar. But what the language of the Bible says is that it's the name of the beast. Calculate the number of the beast, for it's that of a man. But Neron Kaiser was not his name. That was his title. So there's so many problems with Gematria I don't deal with it. I don't think that's the proper way to read the 666 at the end of chapter 13. I'm going to quote now a portion of a book called The Book of Revelation, a Theological and Exegetical Commentary that was published in 2017 by Dr. Paul Hoskins. I read a lot of commentaries in order to try to get my thinking, to get my head around the different things that are in the book of Revelation. This will be the second time this morning that I quote Elder Ward, but I remember Elder one time saying, uh, it's amazing how much light the Bible can throw on some of these commentaries. 
which is the opposite of how it's supposed to be, but some of these commentaries aren't worth the match it would take to burn them. But I like this particular bit of history, and rather than just re-quote it to you and pretend that I was smart enough to know this, I'll give credit where credit's due. So this is Paul Hoskins from his book. And he's talking about the fact that the early church fathers who lived in the 100 to 200 years after Jesus was on the planet, after John wrote the book of Revelation, those church fathers never pointed at Nero. They didn't think it was Nero. This, again, as I keep saying, is a fairly recent development, the mid-1800s. And so he's going to talk about Irenaeus. Now, let's make sure you understand who Irenaeus is. Irenaeus was associated with Polycarp. Polycarp was a student of the Apostle John. So we're getting really good connections here when we talk about Irenaeus. Now, did Irenaeus say some things that were wrong? Yes. Carol, have you ever said anything that's wrong? Okay, so that'd be a yes. And yet, we still like Carol. We still give Carol some credibility. Okay, same thing. Irenaeus is a really good historical source, but people try to discount Irenaeus because it is Irenaeus who heard from Polycarp and quoted from Polycarp that John was on the Isle of Patmos under the reign of Domitian. That's how we know that he was on the Isle of Patmos, 92, 96 AD, somewhere in there. We get that historically right from Polycarp through Irenaeus telling us about it. Irenaeus was of the opinion that when it comes to figuring out the number, we're probably not going to be able to do it, either in his time or in our time. So now I'm quoting from Dr. Hoskins. Irenaeus did not have any firm views as to the number 666 being the number of anyone that he knew about, including Nero, whom he would have definitely known about. I mean, considering the time that he's living, he's less than 100 years away from the reign of Nero. He didn't believe that the 666 was about Nero. He was particularly cautious about this very fact in his writings. Irenaeus lived in the first half of the second century, that would be the early 100s in Asia Minor, and he counseled people to stop trying to figure out the name that corresponds to 666. He suggested that many names can fit, even back then. Think how many more names fit now. So, he argued, it's better to wait and see who the fulfillment will be than to speculate about it. In his book, Against Heresies, Irenaeus writes, it is therefore more certain and less hazardous to await the fulfillment of the prophecy than to be making surmises and casting about for any names that may present themselves, inasmuch as many names can be found possessing the number mentioned. I'm on Irenaeus' side on this one. You know, I've said for a long time, because I've taught prophecy for a 
long time, studied prophecy for even longer. And whenever anybody wants to know exact details about what's about to happen, I tell them, I can give you the exact, correct understanding and definition of it the minute it happens. But up until then, we have to read what it says and then wait, like Irenaeus suggests, and then wait to see the fulfillment. So here's the fact. The beast number, the 666, doesn't have to point to any specific individual. And if that's the case, then what does it mean? Maybe it means something altogether different. Maybe all these years we've been spending in Gematria and trying to identify the Antichrist, maybe that's all been a big waste of time. Maybe the truth is right in front of us and more obvious than we think. For instance, did you know that you can calculate the beast number based on the Greek word for beast? Therion is the word. And the Greek letters of Therion, transliterated into Hebrew, comes up 666. So that's just as valid as the Nero argument. Maybe John calls for somebody who has understanding and says calculate and reckon the number of the beast because he's calling his readers to interpret or decipher the significance of the number itself. So let's focus for a moment on that number 666. One of the most obvious and glaring things about it is that John tells us that it is the number of a man. Actually, the Greek phraseology is arithmos, from which we get arithmetic. That's the word translated number. Arithmos gar anthropos. In other words, it's a human number. And actually, it's translated human later in this book of Revelation. Turn to Revelation 21 for just a second. Revelation 21, verse 17. That's what I'm looking for. Revelation 21, 17. And he measured its wall 22 yards according to the human measurement. That word translated human there is anthropos. The exact same word in chapter 13. So human measurement, human number. Now we have some idea how John himself uses this word, anthropos. And he uses it specifically when talking about the number 666. Because it is a man's number. Now that's true all the way through the Bible. In the book of Genesis... There are seven days in creation. Which day was man created? Sixth day. And that has been the number of a man ever since. Six days you work. On the seventh, it's dedicated to God. You find sixes all over the place, and especially in the book of Revelation, that are always references to man, to humans. Now remember where we began this morning. We began by talking about the unholy trinity. All three of them are created beings. All three of them are lesser than God. Throughout the book of Revelation, the way John uses the number seven, you see that the true trinity, the genuine trinity, is referred to repeatedly with sevens. Even the 
punishments that God pours out are in groups of seven. The Holy Trinity, for instance, the Spirit is referred to as the seven spirits of God. The Lamb of God has seven horns and seven eyes. Something you will never see in the book of Revelation is the Trinity of God ever referred to with the number six. Doesn't exist. But the number six, a man's number, is associated all the way through with this unholy trinity. Probably not surprising then that since there are three characters, there are also three sixes. In other words, what John may be saying here is look at the character of God versus what you're seeing here on the planet. Because what you're seeing here on the planet is this unholy trinity that is a creation. It is not God. Sometimes in the book of Revelation, you'll see the false trinity attempt to duplicate the true trinity. Because as we saw in the book of Isaiah, Satan constantly is attempting to imitate God because he wants to be worshipped like God. And he's going to accomplish that for a short period when the false prophet causes everybody left on the planet, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, everybody whose name is not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, all of them are going to be forced to take a mark, identifying them. By the way, when you think about the mark, as long as I said that, we just read about the 144,000. And God had the angel that was going to scorch the earth, had him hold back for a moment until God marked his people. And he marked the 144,000, identifying those people as belonging to him. So what does the mark of the beast indicate? Ownership. But it is also, since God marked his people, and Satan is imitating what God does, he's now going to mark those that are his people. So sometimes the false trinity attempts to duplicate the true trinity, which is why we read that the dragon and the beast both have seven heads, and then the beast was slain and brought back to life, just like Christ was. And the false prophet has horns like a lamb. Those connections, those imitations, those fakeries all exist. And what we read in chapter 13 is that they are convincing enough fakeries that the people who are left on the planet who don't have the Spirit of God, whose names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life since before the foundation of the world, they're going to be fooled by it. And God is going to turn them over to a strong delusion so that they will believe the lie, so that they will be condemned. That is just God guaranteeing that everything he wants to have happen actually happens because he's sitting on his throne doing whatever pleases him. God is still sovereignly controlling even these events. So then when John says, here is wisdom, let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666, John may be asking us to pay attention to the number itself, not trying to figure out whose name adds up to 666, but what is the character, what is the purpose of 666 and 6? If it is true that throughout the book of Revelation, God is always represented in sevens, God and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that would be three sevens. 
By the way, what's the number of God throughout the Bible? One. One. I remember years ago out in California hearing this equation. One is the number of God. Six throughout the Bible is the number of man. But it is also the number of incompleteness. Whereas the number seven is the number of completeness. And man is not complete as long as he stays in his six. It's not until you add God to the equation that you get to seven, that you get to completion. Okay, that's the kind of thinking that John seems to be making reference to here. That this unholy trinity is made up of three sixes. It's the number of a man. It is incomplete. It is not God. Therefore, knowing all that, in the end, I agree with Irenaeus. I mean, if he didn't know as close as he was to John the Revelator, then I don't think any of us are going to be able to figure it out. No matter how much gematria and how much math we attempt to do, I don't think we're ever meant to identify the Antichrist. Do you know how we will be able to identify the Antichrist? And by the way, when I say the word we, I don't mean we, because I don't think we'll be here. But do you know what the telltale sign, according to the Bible, is that will finally identify who the Antichrist is? He's going to make a seven-year peace pact with Israel that is going to allow them to rebuild the city, rebuild their temple, and begin the worship of God. Three and a half years into it, he's going to cut off the worship in Jerusalem, and he's going to put up the image of himself, that image, the abomination that causes desolation, and his false prophet is going to cause everyone, rich and poor, free and slave, he's going to cause everybody to worship the beast or be killed. Now, let me just add parenthetically, because at some point, we're going to have to discuss the various approaches to understanding like chapter 20 when we get there, and the millennium. And so, so far, in this time through the book of Revelation, we have not talked about the various positions. Because I don't believe the Bible teaches various positions. The Bible teaches one position. I don't think God is confused about this stuff. And so I have just been reading what it says and allowing the Bible to interpret the Bible. But there are people in the world who hold to the notion that the time of tribulation is going to appear in its completeness and then Jesus is going to come back to get his church, that the church is going to hide out or be preserved through the time of tribulation such as never was or ever would be again. Through the wrath of God, they're still going to be here. That is called post-tribulational. I'm not post-anything. I won't eat post-toasties. Oh, I got a million of them. I, I can do this all day. Anyway, given what we just read, can post-tribulationalism be true? Because who is Jesus coming back to get? If you either take the mark, and as we read last week, that means you end up in the lake of fire, or you get killed. Those are the two options. So if you're the church on the planet 
And you have the option of take the mark or die. Last week I said, go with death. So I'm assuming that the church would go with death. They'd go with martyrdom. Who is Jesus coming back to get if he's going to wait until all the wrath of God is poured out before he comes back to get his church? So that eliminates one of the three positions. Instead, we have to understand what's been described here. Everybody who's left on the planet is described as not having their names in the Lamb's Book of Life since before the foundation of the world. That's one of the characteristics of everybody who's on the planet during this time. So if everybody who's left on the planet does not have their name in the Lamb's Book of Life since before the foundation of the world, then no surprise that they would fall for the false trinity. No surprise that they would end up worshiping the dragon. No surprise that they would take a mark because they want to be able to buy, sell, and trade. No surprise that they would do what the false prophet tells them to do. No surprise that they would worship an image of the beast, especially when the false prophet makes that image of the beast breathe and talk of course people are going to fall down before it of course they are going to worship Satan that has been Satan's plan since the beginning if you're not falling for it because your name is in the Lamb's book of life written down since before the foundation of the world be grateful See, I didn't identify the Antichrist. And I've been promising you for two weeks that I wouldn't. And I kept my word by not doing it. I'm so trustworthy. (laughs) Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.com for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.